This morning we are continuing in our application of Genesis chapter 19, and this morning we will continue that by looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. These are the words of God. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who spent uh, their time there in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent." Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now, open this word to us by the Spirit. Give us understanding, give us strength, give us the joy of your salvation. Make us glad, make us courageous, make us strong, make us wise, make us beautiful, that we may bear testimony to you in our own day, and a powerful testimony that you would bless. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our study of Genesis, as I mentioned, we've paused from time to time to make application of on points of special significance or when a question or confusion would likely arise given our contemporary cultural context. For example, we paused after chapter 11 where we covered the incident at Babel. 
It was particularly important because it was the first time following the great flood that God had intervened in history to bring judgment and to prevent a particular form of evil from gaining too much of a foothold so that it would make even more drastic and radical judgment necessary. Furthermore, application concerning the cultural religion of secular man expressed through totalitarian government was something of particular relevance in our day and something likely to raise questions. For similar reasons, we have paused our progress in the text of Genesis following chapter 19 to make application regarding God's intervention in history to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and their sister cities of the Jordan Plain. That judgment, of course, concerned sexually related sin, something of particular relevance in our day and culture, and something likely to raise questions even among committed Christians. Now, we began this uh, study and application last week by looking at the why of God's design for male and female marriage, sex, and procreation. And we saw in a nutshell that it really has nothing to do with necessity and the normal ways that we normally think, because God could have made us like the angels all at once and fully developed, but he didn't. He went to all this extra time and trouble in order to give us the privilege of learning to love as he loves, the privilege of participating in his life, his work, his character, his kingdom, his, his creational activity, all these different aspects of his life so that in the end we might be filled with all the fullness of God, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3. Today I want to shift gears a little bit and look at a major contention of our contemporary culture, one that is used very effectively to empty the Word of God of its power and even its relevance to the many cultural issues we face today, especially including matters affecting spirituality and sexuality, two things which the Bible teaches us are inextricably joined together by God's creational design. We will look more at that next week. But I want to look at this major contention of our secular culture today regarding the Bible, and it is this, the contention that the Bible is culturally conditioned. That's the phrase, culturally conditioned. And I'll give you an example of what that means by quoting a modern-day journalist who was uh, interviewing a pastor. The pastor was talking about the, the design and elements of the creation and how they pointed to God. And this journalist interrupted and said, Isn't it true that the notion of God is simply a projection of our own cultural circumstances? For example, if you were brought up in Pakistan, you might well call yourself a Muslim, as my parents were, he explained. If you were brought up in India, you might call yourself Hindu or Sikh. These are projections of our natural culture in which we live. And he said, you're saying the creative order of things points at God. I'm suggesting to you that actually God is a projection from ourselves. 
from our own cultural circumstances. Isn't that true? Well, you can see that the journalist wasn't really asking a question. He was really making a statement, a statement today that was in, that within upper circles and so-called educated circles is taken for granted as a given. And so we can see if the Bible's basic teaching about God himself is merely the reflection and projection of the culture of a particular time and place, then obviously all the rest of the Bible's teaching is culturally conditioned as well. It basically renders the Bible entirely irrelevant. This is the modern contention by which the secularists simply wave away the Bible the way an adult would wave away a silly statement by a small child without any need to engage in the substance of what the Bible is saying. Well, the first thing we need to note in taking this up is that this box that secularists have built to lock away the Bible is one in which modern secularism must be locked away as well if we're going to be consistent. If all thought is culturally conditioned, then so is theirs. And under that rubric, secularism itself must be waved away and taken very lightly since it also is simply the reflection and projection of modern culture with its peculiar values and subjectively perceived needs. But that's where we get a little tip-off that this is not really a sincere argument because they are not consistent. They say that all values, all truth claims, all moral claims are culturally conditioned except for theirs. And they're constantly making truth claims and they're constantly making moral claims and they're constantly using the institutions and the purveying forces of culture, even the, the might of the government and, and foreign policy to push their truth claims and their moral claims all over the world. But in this particular sermon, I actually want to take this claim that the Bible is culturally conditioned, I want to take it up on the merits. I want to ask, is it true? And all I can say, bottom line, is that if the Bible is culturally conditioned, it is the worst job of cultural conditioning in all of human history. Because at every turn, on the most important issues of life, the Bible not only fails to reflect the felt needs and values of each culture and time, it again and again steps all over them. And we could look at many different examples. I want to look at two, two big ones, both in the ancient world and still today, that is spirituality and sexuality. Huge features of the ancient world and of our modern world. Now, we can't deal with all of that today. I want to look at spirituality today. Next week, we will look at sexuality. In terms of spirituality, the Roman Empire and its culture into which the gospel first came in the Roman, in the first century was like the rest of the ancient pagan world. It was dominated by the worship of many gods. 
And Athens is a perfect example. We see from our text that Paul, he knew that they were going to be worshiping various idols there, but he was stunned at how many. And he's stunned at the fact that this is Athens. It was the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. It was the most famous of the three great university cities of the empire. The other two being Tarsus, where Paul was from, and Alexandria in Egypt. But Athens stood alone as the most preeminent. It had not only been home to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but to Parmenides and Heraclitus before them, the two titans of early Greek philosophy. And um, these two disagreed. I'm going to set the setting for the culture at the time that the gospel came into Athens in the first century. Parmenides and Heraclitus, these two titans of early Greek philosophy, disagreed with one another. Parmenides said that all reality is one. All reality is part of a single eternal and unchangeable reality or being. And though our senses seem to convey the appearance of change, nothing is really changing for all is one and the eternal one does not change. Heraclitus held the opposite. He said everything changes all the time. He says you can't even step twice into the same river because the second time the water and therefore the river is different. It's not the same. And so the disagreement between these two early titans of Greek thought regarding the fundamental nature of reality followed later on by the disagreement between the two later titans of Greek thought Plato and his student Aristotle, again disagreeing on the fundamental nature of reality, led to a cultural cocktail by the time of the first century with the the work of Christ and with uh, the Christian mission going out to the empire. It was a cocktail composed of three ingredients. Skepticism, number one. Radical individualism, number two, and growing totalitarianism, number three. The skepticism came, again, from the disagreement among these great giants of Greek philosophy. And basically, culture decided, people decided, if these great philosophers cannot agree on the fundamental nature of truth and reality, then what hope do we have of discerning that. And so a kind of skepticism and over the inability to really know what is ultimately true and really know what is ultimately reality descended upon culture. And they became uh, basically uh, obsessed in philosophy and just how to live your best life now. That's what it basically came down to. How to just live in the here and now, how to be as happy as possible Uh, how to have the best view of yourself and life and get on the best you could. The second element was radical individualism in terms of trying to cobble together whatever truth works for you, whatever helps you view yourself and life the best way you need to, whatever helps you get by, whatever helps you reinvent yourself as many times as you need to, whatever that's true for you. 
whatever identity you need to come up with, whatever self-help way of thinking about yourself in the world helps you feel good or at least better about yourself in your life, then that is true for you. And this is where all the gods came in. The gods to them were higher powers within the cosmos. They were not like the one true God, creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. They were higher powers within the cosmos. And so the culture at that time, the people acknowledged and worshipped all the various gods, the more the merrier, all the Greek gods, all the Roman gods, as well as Egyptian gods such as Isis, and they were always open to new gods. You see, more was never a problem. The ideal of a well-rounded person was to be as inclusive as possible when it came to spirituality. Include as many gods as possible in one's life. And so when we look in ancient inscriptions and fragments, it's not unusual at all to find um, writings that say, I pray to all gods, or we magnify every God. And the temple of one God would oftentimes have altars to other gods as well. The temple of Demeter in Pergamum, for example, also had altars to Hermes, Helios, Zeus, Asclepius, and Heracles. The private chapel of Emperor Severus, who reigned in the third century, contained shrines to Orpheus, Apollonius, Abraham, and Jesus. But the point was to be inclusive. Entertainment was also a feature of the individualism. Greater and greater fixation on the games and the arena. Gladiators and wild animals and plenty of blood and gore. Plus, most of the larger temples to the gods were staffed with temple prostitutes to combine the ecstasy of worship with the ecstasy of sex. We will get more into that next week. But it was all part of the entertainment industry. Third, growing totalitarianism. And it was totalitarianism based on a faith. Faith in the empire itself. And that's where the Caesar worship came in. They were not literally worshiping Caesar as a man. They were worshiping Caesar as the personification and embodiment of the genius of Rome, the greatness of the Roman Empire. And so you can see that they had the same kind of a divide or dichotomy between private truth and public truth. They may not have used those exact terms, but you see that dichotomy in their day very effectively. Private truth was whatever works for you. In spirituality and sexuality, to fuel the individualism, keep everybody occupied, keep everybody entertained, keep everybody happy. Public truth was determined only by Caesar and the empire governing the public square. Have all the private truth you want, have all the private gods you want, but that's for you privately. It does not determine the law, it does not determine politics, it does not determine society. Caesar determines those things. And in that setting, you can see that by definition, public truth is going to be more and more arbitrary, 
and more and more absolute because there is no real uh, discernible or identifiable way for determining truth. Therefore, Caesar in the empire must simply declare it. And as you have more and more radical individualism going on to have the glue to keep everything together, that public truth has to become more and more and more authoritarian. And so you have this cocktail of increasing radical individualism and increasing radical totalitarianism based on a faith in man, faith in the empire itself. That's going on at the same time. You see, those two things, they sound like opposites, but they feed one another. They go together great. And... It was necessary for the empire to continue to succeed because you have to have success and affluence if you're going to maintain such a high level of me worship, which is what the worship really came down to. Now, I hope this cultural cocktail seems a little familiar to you. It should. Because this increasingly is the same cultural cocktail holding sway over our postmodern American culture today. In God's perfect providence, this was also the culture and the worldview into which the gospel of Christ first came. And if the Bible and the gospel of Christ are culturally conditioned then they should just fit right in, right? Well, let's see how they do. The Athenians, and you can see from our text, are initially excited to hear what Paul is proclaiming because they were always looking for something new. They can't tell what real truth is. They can't tell what reality is. They're just trying to remake themselves all the time. So you're always looking for something new. Verse 21. And you can see that their working assumption is that God and the gospel Paul is preaching is going to fit into their current cultural cocktail. Now, what Paul is going to proclaim to them, though, is what the Bible proclaims from beginning to end. And it boils down to this. There is only one true God, and he is not like all the false gods you worship. Verses 24 to 29. Now, notice I said false gods not fake gods. There was a spiritual reality behind these idols, namely demonic powers, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. So they're not fake gods. There is a true spiritual power there behind the idol, but they are false because they masquerade as the one true God when they are not. They're false in the sense that they are liars. They deceive and enslave men, women, and children. And then Paul goes on to give them seven fundamental truths about the one true God that makes him completely different from their gods. Truth number one, the one true God is creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. 
The one true God is creator, sustainer, and governor of all things, verses 24 and 26. In other words, he is not one among the many higher powers within the cosmos which you worship, these higher powers that are constantly vying and competing and feuding with one another as the Greek and Roman gods were. Truth number two, the one true God is transcendent. The one true God is transcendent. The one true God is not the cosmos, as pantheism would say. Nor is he any part of the cosmos. Nor is he dependent on the cosmos in any way. The one true God is eternal. He is self-existent. And he is fully blessed within himself, needing nothing. Verses 24, 25, and 29. What this means is, The one true God cannot be bribed. He cannot be bought off. He cannot be co-opted like the Greek and Roman gods could. Indeed, bribery was essentially the essence and whole point of ancient pagan worship. Offering a sacrifice, taking a vow, it was all to appease and buy off that higher power so they would do you no harm. That's the most important thing. They do you no harm. But also, if you gave them enough, perhaps you could get them to even do you a favor. This is one of the reasons for including as many gods as possible. You didn't want any of these higher powers, these demonic powers, angry with you. And you have to remember, just read the Greek and Roman stories of the gods. They're all vain, petty, and cruel. Truth number three. The one true God is imminent. The one true God is imminent. Verses 25, 27, and 28. The one true God is not simply transcendent. He's not transcendent like the God of deism who is removed from the creation and has no interest in it. The one true God is also imminent. He is everywhere present and he is infinitely near to each one of us all the time. As Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. The word there, move, it doesn't just mean move around. It also means we change. We, we live, we change, we grow, we grow old in the one true God. Even though we may be unaware of him, even though we may not acknowledge him or worship him. Truth number four, the one true God is personal. The one true God is personal. He created us as his children to know him. He did not create us as deists to be left alone to just figure out things on our own. He created us to know him, to walk with him, to participate in his life, his character, his work, his joy, and his glory. Truth number five, the true nature of evil is not that we are connected with matter, as the Greek and Romans thought, but that we are disconnected from the one true God. Verses 23, 29, and 30. The true nature of evil is not that we are connected to matter, but that we are disconnected from the one true God. 
We were created as God's children, as I've already said, to know him, walk with him, and worship him. But this is something we have utterly failed to do, choosing instead to walk our own way and to worship mere higher powers, created beings, demonic powers within the cosmos. They are fallen angels who hate God, and they hate us because we bear the image of God. And therefore, they love to see us debased. They love to see us degraded. They love to see us suffering and deceived. Truth number six. The one true God is loving and has provided the way of restored fellowship with him and of immortality. The one true God is loving and has provided the way of restored fellowship with him And of immortality, verses 30 and 31. That's what's implicit in God's command here for all men everywhere to repent. Repent simply means turn to the one true God. Turning to him means we have to turn away from wherever we're facing at the time. Whatever we're centering our life upon, whatever is most important to us, whatever is the highest object of our love and devotion and service, whatever is our highest authority, even if it is our own minds or our own feelings, whatever those things, whatever direction we're facing that is not facing the one true God, turn, turn to the one true God. That's what repentance is. So for God to call all men everywhere to repent means he's calling all men everywhere to come home, to turn to him, to be related to him through the one he has ordained. And through this one, this rising, this raising of this particular man from the dead, that means that God has opened up the way not only to fellowship with him, but to eternal life. To, and it's not just an escape from the material world as the Greeks and Romans conceived of it. It is resurrection. That's immortality. It is forever bodily life because forever he has become one of us. Now that's, um, what that means is then God has sought us when we did not seek Him. And through this man he, whom He has ordained, He has provided a way of coming home and receiving that immortality. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 down through verse 10. God who has saved us has saved us not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Truth number seven. The one true God has raised this ordained man from the dead, thus making him judge and Lord. The one true God has raised his ordained man from the dead, thus making him judge and Lord. Verse 31. It is by and through this ordained man that God on a fixed day, the day has been set, he will judge the world and all its peoples according to a standard of perfect righteousness. 
In the Bible, you see the king is the judge. The two offices went together in the Bible. So this ordained man whom God has raised from the dead is judge of all, which means he is also Lord of all. Now, these seven truths about the one true God that Paul lays out here, this is basically the word of the gospel. That's it. That's the word of the gospel. That's the word of the Bible from beginning to end. And that is the word that was committed to the church in the Great Commission. And furthermore, it is the greatest word of love the world has ever heard. At the same time, nothing could have been more contrary, out of step, unaccommodating, and offensive to the values and felt needs of the ancient world into which this gospel first came. Nothing could have been more unreflective of their culture. The gospel word, this great word of love, amounted to a declaration that everything those people had believed and everything they had based their lives on was all wrong. And they needed to completely turn away from all of that and turn to the one true God through the man he had ordained and raised from the dead. Furthermore, this word, this word of love, this word of the gospel, was a direct affront and challenge to the claims of Caesar and the empire. You see, when the gospel first came into the world, this Roman world already had a gospel. The way that word was used at the time is the gospel is what was proclaimed when a new Caesar ascended to the throne of the empire. A new Caesar ascends to the throne. What would they proclaim throughout the empire? The good news, the gospel, that a new Caesar has ascended to the throne. And so do you see how it was impossible for the apostles to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? without creating an affront and a challenge to Caesar and the empire. Indeed, the empire already had a savior because Caesar was the embodiment of the genius of Rome and and the empire was the savior of the world. Caesar was the name that all nations and people were to call upon and were to trust in. It was Caesar who brought grace and peace. Those those were the words that were used. He brought grace and peace to the world. And so when the apostles are saying grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's cutting directly across Caesar's claim. Because you see, while there were all kinds of gods that you can mix together however you want privately, there was only one Lord. And that was Caesar. But now this gospel, this new gospel is coming, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is bringing grace and peace to the world and is the one name that we must call upon. All of that is emptying out everything Caesar and the empire has said and is basically saying that the Caesar and his empire is the parody. It is the parody of the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ as Lord and his kingdom. 
Caesar's empire was just business as usual. It was one more revolutionary empire coming in by the point of a spear establishing its regime. It was one more new kingdom and empire uh, being imposed on an unwilling world. Jesus' kingdom was changing all of that. Jesus' kingdom, he says, it comes like leaven. It comes like leaven. It doesn't succeed by kicking the other ingredients out of the recipe. It succeeds because it transforms. It succeeds because it makes everything alive where before it was dead. This is the true kingdom. This is the true gospel. He is the true word. Jesus did not ask Caesar's permission to rise from the dead. He did not ask Caesar's permission to preach the true gospel in Caesar's empire. He did not ask Caesar's permission to swallow up his empire in the kingdom of God. But he was doing that. So you see, you could not have possibly have a word that was more unculturally conditioned than this gospel word. That's why I say, if the gospel was culturally conditioned, it is the worst job of cultural conditioning the world has ever seen. Because you could not have possibly been more offensive. Just earlier in Acts chapter 17, before they got to Athens, just a little bit before they were in Thessalonica, and what happened? Charges were brought against Paul and the others. And what were the charges? These who have turned the world upside down, these who are bringing this revolution have come here and they are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. These seven truths of the gospel the greatest message of love the world has ever known, this is exactly what got the Christians killed. That's not what you call culturally conditioned. It's what got them killed. Pliny, the elder, is one of the governors within the Roman Empire, wrote to the the Caesar at the time, He was killing Christians already. He wanted to know if Caesar wanted him to continue to kill the Christians. So he's describing them and what they do. He had tortured some slave girls who were Christians to find out what was going on. And he basically says to the emperor, in so many words, they're model citizens. He said they gather. They gather. They pray to Jesus as to a God. They sing him to him. And then they take an oath before Christ that they're not going to be dishonest in any way. They're not going to be immoral. They're not going to steal. In other words, they're going to be perfect law-abiding citizens except they would not say that Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And so he was killing them and he was told to continue killing them. All they had to do was be inclusive It's just that they thought their God was better than everybody else's. And that their gospel was better than everybody else's. You see, it was exactly the exclusivity of this word of love from the word and true God to the world that got them killed. And I would submit to you that in our own day, we must say to our culture the same thing that they in so many words said to theirs. Love is 
requires that we tell you the truth. And in doing so, that we give you the only way of life and blessing, the true good news. We owe you that. Christ has commanded us to give it to you. And because we love him and we love you, we're going to tell you the truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.